The scriptures say that to the pure, all things are pure. So it's not inappropriate for me to stand behind the pulpit. <laughs> we, our task is to reform many things, to purify many things. Forms may be either good or bad. It depends on what the substance is within the form. And for us, we will restore both form and substance. Because truly to be free is to have access to everything without being controlled by anything. So we can wear... I deliberately chose to wear a suit this morning um, and to stand behind the pulpit, not because I wish to, to make those things any more than they are, but to show that we are capable. We'll run the gamut, you see. We'll go up and down the spectrum. When you're called as ambassadors of the Holy One, you're free to, to function in any capacity. And uh, um, just as uh, was said earlier, that you were a people of um, dreadlocks and uh, um, torn jeans and the like, uh, so you're being connected also to your peers uh, who are otherwise disposed, and you're connected up and down the line to the generations. Um, you don't typically want a father to look like you. <laughs> I mean, he may, but there has to be that substance that defines the relationship. And so, I, I mean, the things I was hearing this morning uh, struck a, a, a profoundly resonant chord with me. Because before you, there was a generation to whom God appealed, and most of them did not respond. In fact, there were two generations before you uh, to whom God came and appealed. God has been searching the earth looking for a people. And that's been a multi-generational endeavor by God. And when, I, when Lucy and I came along, we, we were required to choose. We were required to choose just like you are. Um, you may know I have a law degree. And um, I was recruited to work for the SEC. So I was going to be the man, one of the men. I would probably have been getting out of prison by about now. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, it was a tough, tough choice because I had come to place all of my confidence in what I could do. And as I was growing up, you know, my own. Uh, orientation was toward power and rule and all those things. And um, I had the, the means by which to proceed, but I didn't have the character of God. But I was always called. I was called uh, to the kingdom. My earliest memories of, you know, on the edges of my childhood were talking with memories of talking with God. I'd go and sit on the side of this 
the hill of this little village where I grew up in the South Caribbean and uh, and talked to God. Had no idea really who I was talking to. I just knew there was somebody bigger than me up there somewhere. That was the early beginning. So I always knew that I had a rendezvous with that being. And um, I never could quite put him away. I never could quite uh, ignore God. And in the fullness of time, I had to choose right at that crossroads. And the reason I'm telling you this is because you yourselves have chosen, but mostly what you have chosen is how you're going to go forward. But once you've made that choice, you will also have to make an entire series of choices constantly along that line. Many times we think that um, because we say, God, here am I, use me, that we're especially usable. And, And we're upset when we've offered God everything we have that's valuable to us. And he seems to ignore it altogether and, and wants more than we know we have the capacity to give. So I want to talk to you today about the role of suffering in the life of a called one. Before I do, <laughs> let me a little water, please. Before I do, um, I want to introduce Lucy uh, here today. Uh, We've been married 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So we were pretty young when we met. And, uh, but at least she was. And uh, Lucy is the one who kept me from becoming ossified. She insisted that I have fun in life. And if you know Lucy, uh, she is forever young, but not young and immature. She's always um, looking at new horizons, exploring new things, and challenging me to come along, if I, if I will. I also want to introduce my son, Bo, who is both my natural son and my spiritual son. And I hope he has an opportunity to share his testimony as we go along. Because it's the very essence of what we're talking about in the hearts of the fathers being turned to their children and the hearts of the children being being turned to their fathers. Jeremy Kinder is, to me, as much of a son as I have. I've known him since he was 14, and uh, I have such delight in this son as well. A young man of, of, you know, when you're 65, which is my age, you you think everybody's young. And sometimes I think you get offended because you think that he thinks we're so young. But when, when you're that age, everybody's young. Uh, So when I say a young man, I don't mean an immature man. 
I mean, one who is younger than I am by a good bit, but a tremendous grace to the house of God. His wife, Jen, whom uh, I had known before they were married, uh, he introduced her to me, and I knew she was the one. And um, she also forces me to have fun. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, she is a tremendous uh, grace. In fact, I'm, I have said I'm surprised that her house, their house in Austin, Texas, is not yet featured in Architectural Digest. Lucy and I have had the opportunity to go down and spend some time with them and their lovely children and uh, Eliza and Quinn. And, uh, you know, I think I've become a friend of Eliza's and I'm working on Quinn. (laughs) I want, before I get any further into any substance of the message, to let you know how, how indebted I am. And I speak for myself, but I also speak on behalf of the Lord, to Sheba and Santosh. Uh, and truly, I'm here as their guest, because this is the household over whom, uh, over which God has established them. And uh, they're people of impeccable uh, integrity and righteousness. Uh, The exact kind of representation of the Lord in the earth that is needful today. The importance of that is great weight will come upon the house of God. The press is already on us. I don't mean the the media. I mean the weight. There's an eternal weight of glory that the presence of God comes with. When you carry the glory of God, you become light to all whom you meet. Because in him there is no darkness at all, when you become the carrier of his presence, you also are fully disclosed. And there's no darkness in you. And I can say that without equivocation um, with regards to both Sheba and Santosh. I've had numerous discussions with them across a wide range of circumstances. And it always comes up, this impeccable integrity. Um, a desire to walk with the Lord without compromise. And they've been that way a long time. I don't claim to have, uh, to be the the architect of any of that. Uh, If anything, I've, I've added some measure to it by way of information, but they were that way before I met them. And in the highest possible terms, I commend them to you. And I'm honored today to, uh, to come at their invitation uh, to be with you. Um, David and Sarah prayed this event, and uh, in the fullness of time, God is honored. Now, you know, the scriptures are plain, we should give honor to whom honor is due. 
In the prior seasons, everyone was a self-promoter because they lacked the vision of the corporate man. Um, They believed that everything rose and fell on their say-so. But part of what God is teaching us is a culture of honor because in God, there is a culture of honor. The living God is not just um, a spirit being. He's a person. Living God is a person. And what defines personhood, where God is concerned, is not form. The spirit cannot be contained uh, in, in its entirety in a form. Spirit may be contained in specific expressions through form. But at the same time, spirit transcends form. So when we speak of God, and when we speak of the personhood of God, we're speaking of attributes, recognizable, measurable, observable, quantifiable attributes. And one of those attributes is his utter and complete reliability. Reliability. See, God cannot deny himself. And I want to get into a little bit more of that uh, as we go further along. When we speak of the, the preeminent characteristic of God, we describe God, or God describes himself in the scriptures as love. But this is not we, we think of love as romantic love, and there's a component of love that is romantic. However, love is the most encompassing term because it, it, it reflects an entire array of features, of characteristics, which are not only knowable, but can be imitated. One may grow in love when one understands what love is. But in some ways, I'm I'm moving out in several directions. Uh, So let me just go back and and, um, be very precise in focusing one aspect, and then I'll go, I'll I'll broaden it out so you can see... uh, the ambit in which we intend to have this discussion. For the longest while, um, religion has not acknowledged the importance, the value of suffering. In part because the goal of religion, I mean Christian religion and, uh, and essentially all other forms of religion, The goal is to escape the suffering of the present life. And in a sense, its interest has been in finding how exactly to do that. So we've reduced sacred texts to statements that are like talisman. If you you hang them around your neck or if you write them in your journal and so on, then in the right moment when you pull them out, it should alter your circumstance. 
and we have preachers who have become profoundly important um, in the minds of people who are seeking those sorts of um, tokens to avoid suffering, to avoid trial. To put the value of trial in context, we must go back and consider what happened when Adam sinned against God. When Adam sinned against God, everything that was important to that man was lost. Oh, he was still in the world, he could still eat of trees in the garden, he could still move around and so on. But every significant relationship was destroyed. The first relationship that was destroyed was his relationship to his father. As the scriptures say, Adam was the son of God. I, 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 I trust that you've listened to some of this stuff before so I don't have to go through every aspect of it. And I'm, I'm going to refer to things, hopefully, uh, your know, knowledge base will fill in the gaps. So Adam lost his father. Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, that being that in as much as God is a spirit, Adam too was a spirit. Spirit begets spirit. And in, in that regard, if you are spirit, uh, created as Adam was, by an endowment out of God, then you become a son of God. So Adam was put in the earth as a son of God with all of the, the duties to represent God as God is. Right? Eve was taken out of Adam, and so she was of like kind to Adam. When Adam sinned, not only did he, was his relationship with his father broken, but his relationship with his wife was broken. And we'll come back and look at exactly what was lost in these things and why suffering is such an important part of the equation. Within one generation, the issue of Adam and Eve, known as Cain and Abel, within one generation, the son Son, one son of Adam murdered the other. The world will never know how it would, might have been otherwise if righteous Abel also had his progeny in the earth. But it engendered a condition that continues to this day, the condition of genocide, competition between brothers. So everything, in the gar everything that happened in the garden became bedrock to the evolution of human culture. See, it wasn't just that Adam sinned. It was that there was a result, and that result may be defined as a very different culture. Culture is critically important. In fact, I, I was reading uh, early this year, where last year, the most um, searched word was uh, on the internet was the word culture. Because people are coming back to
to a sort of bedrock understanding that you cannot fix present problems without accurately understanding what they are and how they came about. There are no political solutions. And indeed, I would go further and say there are no economic solutions to the world's problems. And what you're watching is the falling apart of coalitions that have been uh, entered into in the hope of preventing exactly this kind of meltdown. So it tells us that we are now coming to that place in time where, uh, in the words of the Irish poet um, W.B. Yeats, turning, turning in a widening gyra, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And uh, as he goes along in the poem, which is called The Second Coming, by the way, written just after World War I, and he, he said, some rough beast whose time come round at last is, slumber, is lumbering to Bethlehem to be born. I recommend the poem. I think it's, uh, uh, for those English lit types, um, uh, it was prophetic. And I'm saying that at this point in time, we're seeing the falling apart of the coalitions that have been put in place to prevent the, the center not being able to hold. In this environment, I believe that God is raising up this people as the answer. So I'm not here just to talk about theological things. I'm here to talk about very practical things as well. But it depends on how you want to address the problems that you see as to whether or not what you say has any possibility of being a real solution. I would say to you that every time the world has come to this place, the answer that God has given is a son. Where heaven and earth meet in this one person. So what was lost when Adam separated himself from his father? What was lost was, his, number one, his identity. And number two, his purpose. These things you've heard before, I'm confident. Adam lost his identity because one's identity is connected to one's father. And out of that identity, one has purpose. One's purpose is defined. Now this, is, this is about our relationship to God, not our biological relationships to, to human fathers. We are spirit beings clothed in flesh. If you sever the being from the source of his being, he dies. He dies. He may live in the earth, but without any sense of an identity. Identity and purpose are the very source from which we derive uh, existence in this earth, intentional existence in this earth. If you don't know who you are, and if you don't know why you're here, then you'll wander aimlessly 
throughout life, whether or not you're clad in Gucci and drive um, exotic cars. It's not a bar uh, to meaninglessness, purposeful, purposelessness. So when I hear some of you having made decisions to leave, so, leave whatever course and direction you were going in behind, to find the way, I will say, in this generation, you are the wise. You're the ones who have enough awareness of what is important to have made at least the first steps of what is the appropriate choice. When Adam lost his father, he lost his connection to divine origin, and he lost his connection to divine purpose. So he lived in creation as one who was dead, though he was yet alive. When he lost his connection to his wife, he lost his future. He lost his future. God saw to it that the man could not reproduce his own kind. He connected the man to the woman in this most intimate of fashion and drew the woman out of the man and established her as the one who could carry the future in her womb. This, because these are mirrors of something else, Christ and the church for one thing, you might understand the significance of these symbols, of these, these types. The future that God always intended was invested in man, in humankind. So when the man lost his oneness with his wife, the thing he lost was oneness with his wife. When you lose oneness with another, not only are you alone, he started out being alone. God said it was not good for him to be alone. He reverted to being alone. When you're alone, the world is against you. You believe the world is against you. But if, if there's another to whom you are connected as one, and you're not alone, and you're not a victim. Even though bad things have happened to you, you may share the journey with another. And it keeps you from the stifling mindset of a victim. And you begin to interpret your sufferings differently. Instead of being uh, interpreted through a paradigm of victimhood, you begin to interpret your sufferings in, in terms of, or within the paradigm of, being equipped, being readied. And instead of seeing yourself as a victim, you ultimately come to see yourself as an overcomer. As an overcomer. When you are an overcomer, you don't feel entitled. You become a giver of life yourself because your testimony helps to overcome not only the devil, 
but the struggle helps overcome doubt and fear and unbelief in others. The Son of God has life in himself, and he gives that life to whomever he wills. When the man lost his connection to his wife, when he lost the oneness with another, you can see how immediately he became competitive and was willing to throw her under the bus by saying, in effect, to God, you and I were having a great time until you decided to give me this woman. I didn't really want her. I was asleep. So I, you couldn't say I collaborated with you in the matter. You made a unilateral decision to do something that produced this woman. And as long as it was just you and me, we were fine. So really, it's your fault that I have left my relationship with you. And it produced in woman um, an anticipation of rejection. It produced in her an anticipation of rejection. The fall altered the woman's enthusiasm for the future and positioned her as one to be defensive, always anticipating the accusation of a husband. You know, we didn't just get here. It's been a long, uh, a long day's dying, I think the, the, the poet said. We got here by deliberate steps. When when the man left his father, he had no sense of continuity to impart to his sons. There was no sense that in the world a community had been formed to which people belonged and it was the aggregate, the whole, that was the important thing. And it became immediately apparent that the culture of heaven had been changed when Cain murders Abel. Seeing in Abel, his brother, his competitor. And to this day, one of the, one of the mantras in business is to kill the competition. It's not enough just to win a, a, a contract. But you want to make sure you never have to deal with that competitor again. So in the process, you try to kill the competitor. These things are part of Genesis. The loss of a father, the loss of, with which was the loss of identity and the loss of purpose, the loss of a wife, the which represented the loss of oneness with another and made selfishness and self-centeredness the order of human culture. And with uh, the loss of, of uh, those two, the third loss was the loss of connection to the generations to come. And those generations lost connection to their past. So they were alone and they decided 
one decided to kill the other to secure himself. You take that and give it all the time that has happened since then. What do you have left as human culture? The full-blown metastasization of those initial um, seeds. That's what we have. How then are you to be extracted out of that culture? How are we to find our way back? Because if this is the original intent of God, if God originally intended that man be the viceroy of God in the earth, the word viceroy is an interesting term. Um, It's two French words, V, which is to see, V-I-S, V, and uh, Re, uh, which is the king. So le visoir is to see the king. Usually that was in someone who came from the court into a territory or domain that the king, that was under the rule of a king. And uh, when, when, and typically this was someone who was part of the royal family. So that when they came into an, another domain, they did not only come with titles, but they actually came with the culture of the court. And they came with the designation, see the king. In other words, when they came in, if, if, an, if, if a viceroy came into a territory, the viceroy was the king represented in the person of his family. Adam was put in the earth as the viceroy of God and given the authority to rule the earth. Now, in the rule of the earth by God through Adam, the earth was supposed to live under uh, the glory of the heaven of a heavenly reign. And all the all the the concerns right now of uh, envir- of the envir- for the environment would never have arisen because if the earth were ruled by God through his viceroy, then it would be a proper stewardship and not what has come about by virtue of greed and, and all of that polity that develops around the desire to protect yourself and to preserve yourself. And wars and, and, uh, and conflicts would not be the order of the day if the viceroy, if the way that God appeared through Adam were the, the, the manner and form of rule upon the earth. So from that to this, from what God intended to the present reality, we have fallen a very long way. Someone has said that you don't know how far you've fallen until you start the journey back. And you are a generation that is starting the journey back. So don't be surprised if part of your discovery is how far we have fallen. 
So as one of, the, one of the set pieces of talking about the value of suffering in the life of a believer is to understand that if suffering is the curative uh, uh, fact, if, if that is the manner in which this fallenness will be cured, it begins with an understanding of just how far we've fallen. I appreciated David's reading of the letter he wrote me. Um, I saw the same thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding you. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Actually, I wept when I read it. I wept for joy because I, there was a sound in the earth in a generation. And uh, it excited me greatly. Lucy will, will tell you that that's true. And, um, but you have to begin by knowing that uh, uh, the fall has taken us this far. We defined the fallenness of man. God defined the fallenness of man, gave us the revelation of it, as in the, in the term culture, in, in, the ter- in the term the culture of the orphan. And uh, or uh, the fatherless. If what was lost is a connection to father as the primary loss, what would be the primary solution? Bring him back to his father. Another solution would be insufficient. Another solution will not be the gospel of reconciliation. It would simply be the gospel of conciliation. The distinction being that conciliation is where you accept the permanence of the loss, but now you move, in terms of solution, you move to mitigate the fallout. You know, if Ben and Jerry decided to make ice cream, and for one reason or another... Uh, the venture went belly up and they couldn't they decided not to continue to make ice cream for the good of humanity um, you're, and they go to court to ask the judge to apportion the respective uh, duties uh, liabilities and assets then what you would have is a conciliated result you're not going to go back to making ice cream, which was the original intent. Now you just apportion the liabilities and the assets by some formula, usually a previously agreed upon formula. We do not hear in churches and in, in religious culture, we do not hear the gospel of reconciliation, which is to put the thing back to the original intent. We hear the gospel of conciliation, which is to save you out of the most onerous consequences of the fall, namely to keep you from going to hell. And and some of you have heard my comments on on that before. There's no point. It's rubbish. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. What we want, what God intended, and in fact, what God set up before he made man, was the gospel of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So if what was lost is the Father, 
What has to be regained is the Father. Anything short of that is not the gospel of reconciliation. Now, I want to I want to go into a little bit of scripture here, if I may, and show you something. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. And I want to read some things from chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By now you know that terms of Scripture are not accidental. Words are not just words. They're terms of art. And and time permitting, I'll explain that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, when? When? Before the foundation of the world. Could you say that's predestination? Of course. In fact, it is one of the, one of the uh, passages that speaks of biblical predestination. Biblical predestination is not what Luther and Calvin defined. They defined it within the context of going to heaven or going to hell. Biblically, predestination is defined in the context of what God made man for. And this defines what he made man for not a result of the fall in which man might either go to heaven or go to hell. They set out on the wrong path. When you set out on the wrong path, the conclusions you reach typically are fairly useless. And they tend to, they tend to confuse the matter because it's not an accurate depiction of the intent. So here's the original intent of God. Blessed be, I'm I'm, I'm retracing my steps. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, which would be God, God chose us in Christ, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in before him in love having predestined us i wish i had kind of kind of come along and snuck that word in there <laughs> having predestined us to adoption as sons by jesus christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. How do you define grace? What is the intention of grace? Grace is to permit all that is necessary to adopt us as the sons of God. Five administrations of grace, we won't get into that now. But the goal of, in fact, the description of grace is that in Christ, we would be restored to the status of sonship. He made us, uh, uh, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now who is the beloved? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is the beloved. We are accepted to God in the beloved and that particular arrangement is designed to produce an identity known as son. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, which means this will come about at some point in time, that he already knows. He foreordains the time, he foreordains the manner, and he foreordains the result. Right? That in the dispensation of the fullness of... Dispensation simply means the giving out, to dispense. So God who dispenses his grace in epochs of time will in the fullness of time dispense to you the fullness of the grace of sonship by which you are meant to be reconciled to God in Christ. He might gather in the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who were first to trust in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's an astonishing verse, a passage of scripture to me. One of the bedrocks of things written in the Bible. Because it speaks of the original intent and it outlines the progression to the purpose and speaks of the economy that will bring it about. Now, God did all of this before you were born. God did all of this before he created Adam. So what do you think is the likelihood that this will fail? Zero. This will be so. The only, the only um, variables or the only points of question is what is the dispensation of time And what is the the economy of God that is now being given out in a particular dispensation of time? And when a people arise on the earth who resonate to uh, the frequencies of heaven and begin to speak in the earth that sound from heaven, then we know it is the time. Because it's being said in the earth. 
such a time has come. Now, let me summarize very quickly what I wanted to say about suffering. But I really want to come back and hammer on a a, a particular revelation that is going on, uh, that I believe God is bringing forth at this point. Uh, And it's the revelation of heaven and earth are meeting together in this new man that God is creating. So, if we have strayed so far from the culture of heaven, number one, what aspect of us was susceptible to that drifting? Clearly not our spirits, but our souls. Our souls bought, our our souls drank the Kool-Aid. Our souls bought in fully to the idea that we in coalition with others, can create environments in our time for our own preservation and for our own supply. But at the core of those coalitions is the sense of self. And you hear it all the time. In your industry, I'm sure you hear it all the time. You've got to take care of number one. It doesn't matter what, what agreements you make. Ultimately, you can break them if you sense that number one is in jeopardy. It's, it's a demonic lie. This is not the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of an orphan who has no vision of life that is transcendent of his daily grind. He's simply plowing through life, trying to make it through with the light of his own understanding. This is not transcendent. This doesn't come from above. This is not where the wisdom of God enlightens the being of man. This is death. This is, this is death speaking to death. And whoever buys into that culture, no matter what you gain as the result, you're already dead. And so we walk around. That's why perhaps the most popular shows on TV right now are about walking dead. That's a prophetic sound depicting the condition not of um, zombies but of mankind, humankind. Now, to rescue you out of that culture, God has to wage war on the soul. And it's not that you're making bad decisions. It is that God who has treated you, has received you as a son, is actually reculturing you to heaven. Now let me show you that passage very quickly. And then I I want to go into the meat of uh, the thing I wanted to, to talk to you about today. Um... 2 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of this. You know, these things have always been in the scriptures. What's interesting to me 
is that you can turn on so many um, uh, Christian programs and indulge narcissism. How you can be a better person in by your own bootstrap. This narcissism. Narcissism is the proper speech of promoters. If you are, if you are a, um, a motivational speaker, then you appeal to the narcissism of people. It's what you do. I mean, any psychology majors in here? <laughs> I mean, you just have to observe. <laughs> you just have to observe cause and effect. The message. Of <laughs> and you know you can see where it's going you can see the end of this thing before you start so why are you even starting on this journey I mean if you know where it's going and you continue that journey it's what Coleridge said it's uh, the willing suspension of disbelief You're, you're suspending Belief in what is actually true for the experience. Well, that's that's idiocy. That's not even fun. (laughs) Because you know where it's going before it gets there. Paul said this. Uh, This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. These things are written in the Bible. What a joy to rediscover the scriptures. Timeless, ageless, wise, like a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Don't be afraid of the Bible. It's been, it's been read and interpreted by people who are fools in that they thought that you could make God into a commodity. That's a fool. A person is a fool who believes that he or she can make God into a commodity. But if you will submit to the wisdom of God, you'll be enriched in every way. But it'll transcend the order of the flesh and connect you again to the order of the heavens. It is is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who... Fourteen years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is, it is not, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I will refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. At least I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, excuse me, unless I should be exalted 
above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a minister of Satan, to buffet me. Lest, you should see that, by the way. Some of you have felt similar thorns in your flesh to buffet you. You Um, Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is perfected in weakness. I want to linger over that uh, when we come back. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities than the power of Christ, that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've become a fool in boasting. You've compelled me, and so on. He said, you know, I I didn't mean to talk to you like this, but in, in order to answer your questions... I found myself going down this road. So let me, let's go back to this thing. When Paul asked God for the removal of the minister of Satan, a minister minister of Satan is a demon. Sometimes humans can be ministers of Satan, but always (laughs) demons are uh, uh, ministers of Satan. And we have quite an abundance of evidence that a demon followed Paul with the intent of tripping him up, getting him in trouble. It happened in Philippi when he healed a woman who was possessed. Uh, She followed them around for three days and kept saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. Paul typically would not endure a demon for a day, yet he saw, he saw the trap. And so after three days, he had mercy on the woman, drove out the demon, and the syndicate to which she belonged, by which he was owned, pressed charges for the loss of commercial value. And um, Paul was hauled before the judge and sentenced to prison. Now, I won't go further into that except to say Three times Paul asked the Lord to remove this, to cancel this assignment and to remove the demonic spirit. God's answer, pay, pay close attention to this because I think this is, this is part of what you, you're wrestling with. God's answer to Paul. This is the wisdom of God speaking to his son who asked him three times for the removal of this assignment against his life that oppressed him at every turn, three times. And then God answered him finally and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So the goal of the refusal 
of God to give him the answer he was seeking was to perfect the strength of God in the place of Paul's weakness. And he, he characterizes strength as my grace and uses the terms grace and strength interchangeably. My grace is sufficient for you, God said. My strength is perfected in weakness. Grace is the economy of God. God did not set you in the earth to fail. God did not set you in the earth to make fun of you and to poke you like, a, like you would poke a, a, a bear in a cage. Not a good thing to do if you had the opportunity to do it. But a mental picture, of, like a child you know, having fun with a trapped animal, um, if you'll call that fun. God, God does not have fun with you that way. You know why I know that sometimes we think that God just jabs us to have fun with us? Because I was in the cage. I spent quite a bit of time in the cage, actually. Lucy was with me in the cage. I wish he would jab her a little bit more. <laughs> I was in the cage at the very times that I had to decide which way I was going. I found myself fenced in and unable to escape. And I didn't like it, in the words of Dr. Seuss, I did not like it, not one little bit. <laughs> I did not like it. In fact, I pushed hard against it. And on one occasion, my frustration with God was uttered in the terms, why don't you just leave me alone? I said, I know you're not going to help me, but there's a lot I can do for myself if you didn't keep messing up everything I tried to do. <laughs> you talk about being an orphan and looking back and shuddering at where you were. <laughs> you know, it didn't hold a candle to my ability to resist God. Or so I thought. You know, after everything I was thinking because I was so frustrated, I had no point of reference back then. And no point of reference to the role of suffering in shaping me. I finally came to the place where I said, okay, here's the deal. You're too big for me to resist. So just go ahead and do whatever you want to do. And from now on, I'm not going to ask you for anything. Because that way I can't be disappointed. <laughs> so if you see me as this great man of God today, that's where I came up. I came up out of that grave. So I know what you're talking about. I know how you're feeling when you don't have money for the rent, when you don't have food, when you work on a project and someone steals your labor, 
when you don't know what else to do. I know where you are. I know where you've been because I've been there. I know how it feels from the inside of that cage. So I can tell you that when you ask God to remove that kind of, remove the barriers and set you free so you could soar in all that he's put in you. Sometimes you say to God, why did you give me all this talent? Why did you give me all of what you've given me? And yet you have me stuck in Lodi again. You remember that song? <laughs> That's for an older generation. <laughs> Lodi is up the road. Let's say again. They might remix it though. <laughs> it's an old Creedence Clearwater revival song. Oh Lord, oh yeah, I'm stuck in Lodi, California again. You just you're not going anywhere. You see, Martha remembers that. Yeah. You know, in an out-of-the-way set of circumstances where your career is in neutral. And what adds, what adds to the, the sense of distress is people a whole lot less talented than you are getting the breaks, making big money. And uh, <laughs> I saw that too. You know, I saw my friends getting... Uh, big assignments and government agencies and law firms and winning big cases and I mean I got yeah I mean I was yeah, <laughs> I was nominated to be a Rhodes Scholar and you know got the faculty award when I got out of, but, you know if any man thinks he has wherever he might glory in the flesh I had more but I speak as a fool because I put my trust in those things. But again, as I said to you very early on, when I was six or seven years old, I'd walk and talk with the Lord. And I'd sit on the hillside and talk to the Lord. And, and so I didn't, I, you know, there was going to be a destiny, an encounter with this destiny. And um, when I finally came to that place where I was entirely entrapped, I could not move. Finally, I said, you know, okay, you're too big for me to contend with. I'll just, I'll just stay out of your way. Maybe you won't take such keen interest. Maybe you'll go on to somebody else. <laughs> and then I was doing exactly the same thing as I was doing the day before, when a day later things began to change. Now, once this started to change, I immediately began to think about how to amortize that change <laughs> over time. You know, how to how to develop that change in another way of being in control. And he would cause the bottom to fall out of that again. And I would say, I wish you had just left me in the cage. At least I knew the confines of that. <laughs> It's much worse to be out here, have some little bit of success. You know, you show me that you, you cared, you remember me. Now that could mean either you, you're in for another round or, or you'll just leave me alone. My soul was stronger than I thought. 
And frankly, the more talent you have, the more abilities you have, the greater the tendency to rely on what you can do. Because everybody tells you you're going to succeed. And you wonder why God hasn't listened to all of your peeps. Vox populi, nunca est, vox Deus. The voice of the people is never the voice of God. See, I knew a little Latin too. (laughs) So, the purpose of suffering then is to rest your soul. And to show your soul that it is not in control. Because if your soul is, you will continue to decline. Thorn in my flesh, a minister of Satan, was given to me to teach me what? That there is an economy that is greater than my suffering. And that economy is even greater than everything that opposes me. It's called the strength of God. And that strength, look at the language. My strength, God says, is made perfect in you, in the environment that makes you weak. Where you don't rely on anything you have, anything you could do, anything you could arrange, When you come to that place, then the struggle has ended. That place is your cross. That place is where you participate in the sufferings of Christ. But this is the truth, and I do not lie to you. Wherever and in whatever manner you are called to die, you will be resurrected. And you'll be resurrected in a form that defies the ability of the wisdom of this world to kill you again, ever. Ever. Then you are free. Then you are free to pursue what God has in mind for you. Then you become game changers. Because there's not enough money, there's not enough allure, in anything that you are pursuing to hook you. If you can be controlled, you're not useful to God. Because your enemy will pervert that and present it as if it's God. But if you cannot be controlled except by the Spirit, then you're finally available to God. Absolutely. That's why the scriptures say we die daily, but the other side of the equation is you're also resurrected daily. When you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live in a resurrected form. The entire earth was created on the principle of death and resurrection. It's endemic 
It's in, it's in the space. Death and resurrection are the order of this earth because it was created by God. That's why Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you were dead, yet shall you live. I mean, how ordinary is death and resurrection? Seed in the ground. We eat three meals a day on the principle of death and resurrection. It's, it's so pervasive that the fact that we may not believe in it is a mystery. That's why you initially go through the symbol of baptism to signify that you now are a participant in this economy of death and resurrection. So I'll conclude with this. It's right here in the same passage. So what then should be your understanding? Paul offers us a clue. Therefore, he said right after that, most gladly I will boast in my weaknesses or infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions. These are all the kinds of things we are familiar with. Uh, Pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. A self-induced any of these, if any of these things are self-induced, it has no, it doesn't have the same value. Okay, but when they come in the course of your progression toward maturity, then, as Paul would say, "For when I am weak, then I am strong." What is why is why are you strong when you're weak? What is the exchange? The exchange is his strength for your weakness. When you are weak, you make room for the functioning of him in you. And the only aspect to this that challenges us is whether or not we believe. That's where you go through the the sufferings. And you go through them repeatedly, and you watch how God not only rescues you, but he brings you out at another place beyond, time and time and time again. So much so. And I'm confident you are already experiencing this in your life. So much so that while you are still focused on the fact that you're suffering and things have not come to pass yet, even when you are in that condition, the people around you who see you begin to see that you're a standard of behavior that's much greater than the circumstance that you're in. And that's, that's the advance notes that you should take as encouragement that your sufferings are purchasing for you Another passage from first, uh, I, I won't turn to it to read it, I'll cite it for you. First Corinthians 5 says, The light and momentary sufferings that we're going through are purchasing for us 
an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. When I began this discourse, I said, to carry the glory of God is a weighty thing. And it cannot be carried on the shoulders of unpurified priests, according to the Old Testament and the Ark of the Covenant, type and shadow of the presence of God. When you have come to carry the presence of God as the sons of God in the earth, you will be reformatted according to the standards of heaven. And while it is happening to you, even when you haven't noticed it, people around you will see that you are the Ark of the Covenant, for you carry the presence of God. And, and then we can hear the sound like we heard this morning, coming out of pure hearts. Hearts who, when they say, oh, how we love you, that's not a religious sound. That's the pouring out of the depth of praise and worship to the one whom we've come to know as he is. So I want to encourage you with those words. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and to establish you in your places among the sanctified. Amen.